0: So, with the new rules, how many stolen bases should we expect this season, and from whom? I'll ask Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, Sirius XM, and podcasts everywhere. Next on Baseball HQ Radio,
1: learn to play the winner's way, cause Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. <laughs> and here's your host from BaseballHQ.com.
0: Columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 7th. Near as we can figure, it's show number three of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday Tout edition for you. We'll have a feature interview with Todd Zola, discussing what to expect in the new stolen base environment, what he's seeing out there this season in draft land, why we both like best ball leagues, and more. It's another big Tuesday Tout Edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Todd Zola is in the house. We are going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, it's our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, Sirius XM, and podcasts everywhere. Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Good to be back with you, PD.
0: A new season, a new season of Baseball HQ Radio, and of course, uh, you're one of our favorite guests. You've been on the show so many times that it's uh, like old hat, I I suppose, for uh, us, but hopefully not for the listeners, because it's always something new and interesting. But uh, let's start with the basics. Uh, How many drafts have you been doing so far this year, and how are they going?
1: You'll be honest, I haven't done as many as I normally do by this time of the season, And part of that, to be honest, you know, if you count the mocks that, that I, I, you know, I I don't know this for sure, but I'll bet you, if I'm not the person who's done the most magazine mocks in the history of the world, I've got to be the top three. Uh, And there's not many magazines anymore. And even though they're just mocks, they're still drafts, and you still learn from them. So uh, not as many of those. And I haven't done as many of the uh, of the high stakes or the, the for me the medium or low stakes drafts either but um did tgfbi in the middle of razz Slam now i've done a couple uh the arizona fall league speakers league draft that did that and i own roto junkies and we did a roto junkies we did a roto junkies um subscriber draft so i've, I've done a few
0: Well, you mentioned uh, that you can always learn something from every draft you're in. What have you learned so far in 2023?
1: Well, let's see. I've learned that a lot of these drafts aren't NFBC, but they may be an NFBC platform. I don't know if it's happening in NFBC or not. It's always the NFBC ADP that we're comparing it to. I'd like to think it's the the rooms themselves that I, I see less... I see less being married to the ADP and I like that because I, I think that's a challenge when, when you have to play chicken with everybody, because you're not exactly sure when they're going to, you know, you can't say, all right, I got this ranked guy in the fourth round. ADP says eighth round, I'll take him in the sixth. You don't know. You don't know. You have to, it, it forces you to take your guys. And I, I like that. I I I, I prefer the challenge of that. than playing ADP chicken the whole time. So again, I haven't done strict ADP uh, NFPC type drafts, so it may just be that the format's similar, but the room isn't an NFPC type room.
0: I know what you mean about the ADPs, and I actually stopped using the average draft position, and I kind of pivoted to the minimum draft position. I want to know how early this guy went, because I, when I'm trying to calculate if I'm going to try to beat the field even on a guy that I'm much higher than, I don't want to waste a fourth-round pick if I'm pretty confident that he's going to go in the sixth, to use your example, but I don't want to get sniped. If his average draft position is in the is in the sixth but his high is in the fourth, then I've got to decide in the fourth whether I want to go or the fifth at the latest because I have to believe that there's something that somebody saw, and presumably a fairly decent player, that that particular player at that particular point, made sense for them. And if if that's fifth round, he might not be the only person in the world who thought that, and I have to be a little more willing to reach a little further than I might have otherwise.
1: I agree, but not, I think there's a, cat, not so much a caveat, but something I've kind of, I don't want to say an epiphany, but something I've come to realize with ADP is it's, it's, it's not a rankings list it's the average draft position of the most aggressive person in each room on that player. In other words, if you would ask everybody in the room to rank all the players, I'll bet you their ADP is earlier than the than the aggregate rank. Because all it takes is one in each room to like somebody. So I think what you're doing in that way, I think the danger is if there was only one person that liked the the player in the fourth and everybody else liked him in the 5th or 6th um i don't know that i want to plan my draft around just the, the the complete outlier i think the adp already tells you the average of the most aggressive person and i don't i don't know i think it's, it i think there's certain players that if you're really high on okay i'll i'll look at the minimum but i think looking at the minimum for everybody I don't know. I, I I have to think about that, but I think it could be dangerous because I think we're already the ADP already represents the most aggressive, the average of the most aggressive people on each player.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, and to be perfectly clear. I kind of abandon ADPs entirely after about the fourth round because uh, things start to change. Everybody's got a different idea how they want to build their team. They get worried about the position scarcity that uh, erupted unexpectedly and all of a sudden Marcus Simeon jumps up around uh, because somebody looks down at the next second baseman and thinks I don't like that second baseman so I'm going to jump now. There are all kinds of factors that should go into the decision and I think the ADPs are probably pretty solid for the first three or four rounds, but again, they're not particularly solid in a specific sense in that we know that the first five or six picks are going to be, you know, Trey Turner and Judge and and guys like that, but we don't know what order that's going to occur in, and it's even more like that in the latter half of the first round where you're, you see a couple of guys taking, you know, Kohler-Burns. You see a couple of guys reaching for, you know, Fernando Tatis. There's all kinds of things that start happening almost right away. So I think the ADPs are at best a kind of overview guideline for the few, first few rounds. And after that, you should really start proceeding as though you just need to plan your roster as you think you're going to need the guys.
1: Oh, for sure. And you know, I think we've mentioned it every year at This when we do this is the the NFDC is its own entity. It's its own economy. It's its own deal. And if that's the ADP that's out there, it's wonderful. Thank you. know, it's great to look at. It's so flexible and sortable and all that kind of stuff. But it's still in the ADP mindset of pitching early. You know, it's so it may not pertain to one's home league. It may not pertain to one's work, you know, et cetera. It does. So we have to I'd look. I use them more on a relative basis, in that I don't care where Cole and Burns and McClanahan and Wheeler and Nola are being drafted. I care about the order of them. I don't care about the absolute pick. I care about like the relative ranking of them as a you know. So I that's where I look at the ADP is, and I and I think even if you, I, you can look at it to try to find out where the where the drops off where you know the where the third base drop is. Not so much what round. But after what player, and then you just have to know the room and read the room to right. know where the where the where the actual our pitcher's going late, pitcher's going early. You know, paying for speed. So I do think the ADP NFPC ADP is very useful on a relative you know relative player basis. I think it's fantastic because there's so many drafts. Uh, you know, I, I don't care where people are taking Nolan Arenado. I want to see that he's being pushed up a little bit because you just talked about the second baseman. Simeon Arenado is that third baseman that gets pushed up because he's kind of that, you know, right, right before the cliffs of insanity, you find Nolan Arenado.
0: As a matter of fact, I'm in my Razzball draft, and uh, there was just a run on all three of the top third basemen or three or four of the top third baseman. And sure enough, Nolan Arenado got jumped by a few rounds because that, that drafter looked at the situation and said, the next third baseman's like... 120 picks later, and I want to have a, th- a solid third baseman. Now, I think you could argue that it, because it's a points league, it doesn't matter as much that you, I mean, you have to fill the position and you're going to, f- assuming that Aaron Otto's a 590 point player based on projections and the next guy down is 490. So you get a 490 point third baseman and grab a 590 point, whatever else is going catcher or whatever the case might be. And you end up pretty much netting out in the same way. So I wonder what you think about, I understand the value of relative pricing that you want to know that Nolan Arenado is the last of the big third baseman and then there's a huge cliff that you fall off and that knowledge is pretty important, but how you manage that knowledge maybe is, it may not, it may not be the kind of thing that you look at the situation and say, well, obviously I have to have Nolan Arenado at any price at this point.
1: No, I don't believe I don't believe in doing it in a rotisserie league, and I certainly don't believe doing it in a best ball league. If I find myself devoid of a particular position, the last position I fill in best ball is the one I back up first, and you know that way you're just looking. You know, I don't have a first baseman yet, um, so I have a shortstop, third baseman, second baseman. So I'm gonna you know, whenever I take my first baseman, my first infield backup. Is going to be a first baseman because, you know, one of those, one of those, you know, and I'll get a third one later, et cetera. But I, I want my best backup to be able to have a better chance of outscoring my worst infielder. Right. If you, I mean, I don't want to, I don't, I don't, I I have Jose Ramirez as my third baseman. I mean, I'm not, I'll go, I'll back him up, but I'm not going to take another good third baseman. Cause he's probably not going to get in my lineup because Ramirez is going to beat him. I know this corner and utility, but you know we're kind of reducing it just for the sake of the conversation. So when I, you know, I, so in that case with Arenado, I would not force him up. Um, I would just hammer third base later and just try to get you know uh, such that one of them with upside. Maybe you take a Ryan McMahon that way when he's at home. He, he you know he spikes that week and take another third baseman that is on a good team or something. You know the week that Arenado away, this other third baseman. Uh, Has a good week, so you get your points that way.
0: I think that's well said. Uh, The mantra that we've been using probably since we started doing this thing is understand the rules of your league and understand how those rules affect the gameplay. And to your point, if you have a weak position, then you probably want to lean a little harder on the reserve rounds. Well, in best ball, they're not really reserve rounds, they're just rounds, but the the later rounds, shall we say, because you want to have, if you've got one terrific third baseman, suppose you have Machado or Austin Riley or somebody like that, and you think to yourself, okay, I think this guy's pretty solid. There's not an immediate need. But if you don't, then you might want to have three or four third base eligible players in the hopes yep. that on any given week one of them strikes.
1: Yeah, I in this format, I usually it's usually second base for me that I I wait because like to say it's 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 a quantity not quality position right there's so many players eligible at second base especially on the NFBC format of best ball where you can't where it's able to handle the multiple positions Bantrax for instance just assigns everybody one eligibility so Jay Cronenworth is one position whereas in, in the NFBC format it'll figure out where he best makes your lineup strongest etc and so it just happened to be in this particular league that Albies was available for me and at or near the top of my list. So I, I took him and I, I know I, I will first baseman I usually have by now, but I did a little, I don't know, have some fun and I double tap Varsha and Rio Muto at the turn because catcher are, I think catcher, Catchers are huge in best ball. I figure I I don't want to rely on a lesser catcher to try to have a good week. I want to lock in my catcher points and rely on the other positions where they're just stronger players to have a spike week and and pop into my lineup. I always take a catcher early. To be honest, the second was more about I'm riding the bus back from, uh, from my labor trip, the shuttle bus to my car. I don't really want to consult my rankings because um, I call him up on my phone and eh. so, you know what let's just have some fun and double tap Riamuto and and you know shake up the room getting taught get him talking and it, so it was more for a social pick although it turned out he was he was the highest ranked player in my list even after our show so we'll see what happens
0: one of the things I've been doing to try to manage this question about where's the cliff and who's the most valuable guy on the available list based on where's the next available guy is like everybody else, I've got a spreadsheet that has totaled the points using the, using the RAS SLAM formula, which I believe is just an NFBC formula. And yeah. I, I know from the projections that I've compiled from various sources, how many points each of these players is likely to get, or if the projection is accurate, right, this is right, how many right, of course. Right. And then I've got a column that looks down at the position that the player plays And finds the next guy at that position and subtracts what the next guy's worth from what this guy's worth. And then as I just glance at the column, I've got guys who are plus 60 over the next guy in that position. I've got guys who are plus four. And I'm going to lean towards that plus 60 guy because I know that the next guy's 60 points worse. And I it seems to be working so far. I'm only through three rounds and I, I can see things shaping up the way I want to, but... I'm trying not to get too married to anything and, and be more, more willing to just play my gut rather than play my spreadsheet.
1: Right. And, you know, we, earlier we talked about ADP. I think, you know, talk about throwing the ADP out the window. Once you've got your core built, then it's all about, you know, backing up your players. And it's more important, you know, you don't, you don't, it's not the best player available, the most points projected. It's the highest rank of the backup I need the most. So to me, you know, the ADP is just—I don't even consult it when it when it comes to um, in a best ball scenario. And you know, I'll be—I'll be frank; I'll be quite honest. Just by looking at this board, I can tell there are people that are just—they don't understand the the scoring because there's a, there's one person whose team is clearly based upon standard point scoring to be you know a little bit uh, behind the fourth wall, whatever. The NFBC scoring is designed, and I know this because I was in on the scoring, uh, is designed so that the rankings as close as they possibly can emulate five by five. Whereas most points league scoring it tends more to OBP. It, it it's it's a different it's a different type of scoring. I can tell by at least one, I think maybe two of these teams, they're kind of drafting off the standard uh, points rankings and not not realizing that this system is supposed to be, you know, it was a marketing tool. They did the NFC didn't want to have their customers have to learn a whole new rankings. They felt that if, if they really wanted to, they could use the the five by five ADP and draft their best ball team and still be competitive. Um, That's why they did it. Uh, So um, my point being, when you've got people who don't understand points league scoring you, you you can't look at the ADP because they're not using it. If you you know you don't know if they're gonna inadvertently take your guy. So, man, and these and these I just completely throw them out the window.
0: I agree, and and I think as I said, I've got a system for looking up which guy I think I'm interested in based on the gap between him and the next guy at the position. I I don't see any flaws with the reasoning at no, any rate. No. It seems like it makes sense. But you mentioned that you were in on the discussions about how to adjust the points league scoring for NFBC leagues to more closely reflect uh, standard rotisserie play. And I'm wondering, even at that, the, there are very few pitchers who are within 200 points of the top hitters and it that seems to be uh if if they're trying to reflect what standard roto looks like it seems to be a bit of a gap that that the pitchers still aren't worth as much as the hitters at the very top end you're looking at 24 to 30 hitters before the first pitcher and and I don't know that that's an accurate reflection of their value uh, because in in rotisserie it certainly wouldn't be that way
1: well this is another thing that people aren't doing is you have to subtract about subtract away replacement, and in the in the in the this is at 108 pitchers, it's a 12 team nine pitcher league, so you got to subtract the points of the 108th pitcher from everybody. So the 108th pitcher is zero, and you do the same with catchers. So they're in this league is 24 catchers, so you subtract the 24th catcher's points from all the catchers to become zero. And then you can do it by position, or we we talk about there's no scarcity anymore. Then you lump all the non-catchers and non-pitchers together, figure out that, and that would be, what's it, uh, 144 minus 24, whatever, 120. So the 120th non-catcher position player, those number of points are subtracted from everybody. When you do that, you'll find the pitchers jump up.
0: I didn't think of that, to be honest with you. I just uh, kind of calculated the, the, uh, I stood the two columns side by side and I said, what's the factor by which I need to multiply the pitchers to get them on an even keel with the, with the hitters and it worked okay. I mean, it seems to make sense.
1: Yeah. Well, having, having said that now, now just here's, here's where I think, you know, I'd like to think I have an advantage. I don't know. Just because. The ranking resemble that of five by five. It, that just means that the play there's still a best ball strategy, right? There's still the whole idea about uh, two start pitchers jumping up and you know getting into your lineup that week, and guy, you know how saves come in waves because a team places a a poor team and the save closer gets you know three saves and you know. So I think you have to embrace the volatility. In a best ball points league, and I, I kind of alluded to it. I think it was McMahon. I used Ryan McMahon. Once I get into my backups, I don't. I, I throw the rankings out the window. I'm looking for an edge. I'm looking for a reason why my backup might spike, and that maybe it's a home park, maybe it's on a on a on a good team, and that good team faces a bad team. You know, there to me, there's uh, I don't. I, Rankings assume the players in your lineup all year long, but we know you know we both know that's a flaw with rankings because especially with the reserve list. Is so pitchers, it's more important I think you know a good home park, or in in a division facing weak teams. I know there's fewer divisional games, but I you know I that's what I'm looking for when I start to pick my reserves. I embrace the volatility that's necessary to get. Points on a week-to-week basis into your best ball lineup.
0: In the Rasball format, I think we've got our twenty-three man main roster. Is it seventeen or twenty more? Is it forty-three or forty that we get total?
1: Uh, I think yeah, they all run together. I think it might be forty-two, oh, but 42. I, it's it's, in, it's in, it might be forty. I don't remember exactly. <laughs> no, because I, I mean, Fanball has a certain amount, and then. Underdog, yeah, but it's 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 in the four. I think it, I think the cut line is forty two, and I don't you know. Rasball's twelve teams as opposed to ten for the cut line, so I don't know if it's less. And um, <laughs> the the one the, the one thing with in Rasball and the cut line, most best balls are drafted, and you're done. There are two fab sessions
0: in, in Rasball. Razz-
1: yeah, yeah. So. um one one like really early in the year, then one a little later into the year. But yeah, so um uh, I I you know, I mean, if you can't tell just by I guess I call it my enthusiasm. I've kind of embraced even you know a lot of rotation. i like the best ball format because it involves two of my favorite things. It involves drafting and then doing nothing. <laughs> uh, so I kind of you know, I'm I kinda, of, you know, even though it's not five by five i i've I've kind of embraced it a little more than maybe some of the older people like myself in the industry that you know i it's i'm I'm a roto guy i you know i if yeah you know, one league I'm playing roto but i I kind of like this best ball stuff
0: I like it too because for the very same reasons I like the idea of putting a team together and I like the idea of having it assessed in some way but the week to week stuff. I've got enough of that with a couple yeah. of other leagues, right? And right, right, this right. this allows me to to assess my acumen at building a roster without having to manage the roster all the way through. And I think that's a valuable thing to know about yourself. Are you Is your strength in drafting? Are you more likely to do well in a thing where you have lots of opportunities to make roster changes? Yeah. I think, you know, self-knowledge is important. I, I was starting to laugh because not five seconds after we say the most important thing is know your league rules, <laughs> and neither of us knows the rule on this league. Uh, it's forty guys, forty two. I don't well, actually, know. I'm,
1: I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at my at my roster. I can go down forty two. It is forty two.
0: Okay, so it, it, do you think that's nineteen extras? So how are you going to split them up, hitters, pitchers? Do you think?
1: Um, I usually go. I try to have you know. I it goes. It depends upon how many multiple eligibility players they have the more multiple eligibility players i have the more i can not get another hitting reserve and take a pitcher so what i try to do is i try to have three players to cover each position so i mean if i have drake cornerworth he covers like three positions so he counts toward you know three times towards that goal and you know, catcher. I, I I'll get four. So, you know, in outfield, I usually look for eight or nine. But I try to have some multiple position really, and then I kind of sub- my pitchers fill in the fill in the rest. So I'll have between sixteen and nineteen, depending upon how many multiple elibi- multiple eligibility players. Can we just call them Meps? <laughs> I don't. You know, I, 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 you know, multiple eligibility players. I have. I don't. Do I have any? I don't have any. Well.
0: Earlier,
1: I have Dalton Varsho. I'm not counting him, but um, yeah, I haven't. I will put a premium on those, but not at the beginning.
0: I think that's the way to play it. In the, I'll give a tiny bit of a tiebreaker if I can't decide if in the main draft or at any point, if a right. guy's got an extra position he can play in best ball, I think that's a, a good tiebreaker t- to use, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't bump a guy up around over a better player just because he was multi-eligible unless I started realizing my roster had sh- a shortage in some area that might make it worthwhile. But that's uh, that's why we play, right? You you start right. building a roster, you get sniped here and there and next thing you know your carefully laid plan is in ruins and you have to pivot and start grabbing, uh, you know, guys who play third base on Saturdays only or something.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm quickly looking through the players drafted so far middle round seven, I don't see a lot of multiple eligibility players. So I don't, I don't feel so bad. I mean, so if I do put a little more of a premium and again, once we get past six, seven, eight rounds, I don't, you know, I don't care about ADP. So it's really, I'm not jumping a guy up because I don't believe in their ranking at that point. Cause I don't believe, you know, again, we're, you're ranking their entire season and I'm not going to use my second and third players. I don't care about their away stats or, Etc. I don't care about my San Diego pitcher stats when he pitches out of San Diego. I only care about the good ones. And yeah, I mean, we could. The younger me would have, you know, taken the stats out and re-ranked. Eh, it's not worth it. Uh, it, It's easy enough to figure out. Just you know, narrate. You know, kind of intuitively.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Todd Zola from ESPN and Masters Ball, and gosh, every podcast uh, under the sun little bit of serious XM from time to time. I guess that should be coming up again pretty soon, Todd.
1: Right. Um, so I've been on MLB network radio all season and I, I'm back to Sundays just, just on Sundays with Rotowire and Jeff Erickson on the Sunday show from, uh, one to 3 PM. Now we've got a lot of live. We have a lot of live drafts on the weekends now, tout wars and labor. So, uh, didn't, wasn't on this past weekend and this next weekend. um, I will be, but then we got Tout Wars again. But yeah, and uh, and I was on Monday and Tuesday last year. Uh, Nick Whalen is is the full time. Finally, we're not finally. I don't mean to say finally is the person replacing Chris Liss. I helped I helped fill in last year while while everything you know got the, got everything back in, uh, in in order. You know, so now Nick is with Jeff four days a week, and I'm happy to be with him on Sunday and on on the show on Saturday on MLB Network Radio.
0: It's a good show and it's a lot of fun and it's very informative. So, be looking forward to that. Uh, getting back to the drafts this year, have you Yeah. We, we we talked about how you're putting guys in and ignoring ADP's and all these kind of things, but in general, have you seen any hitters that you've just consistently thought were bargains at where they were going in your drafts?
1: Yeah, you know, there's a few and I think there is a, a little bit of an overreaction to how Candom Yards played last year. And I think that the Ryan Mountcastle and Anthony Santander, Austin Hayes, I think they're being discounted a little too much. So I'm trying to get in on that. Um, so I, I'm ending up with a lot of uh, of those type of, of the Baltimore hitters. Um, call, call it a homer pick if you want, and that's fine. I think it's more about sometimes just more informed about our hometown teams, but I'm taking the chance on Adam Duval in center field for the Red Sox. Let's see, he's a, a right-handed fly ball hitter. Hmm. Where would that play very well? So I'm, I'm, you know, we'll see if the defense holds up and see if he holds up, but I am I, I taking the dive on Adam Duval in the and I didn't get him in labor mixed al mixed al al labor over the weekend this past weekend. Um, I think it's a little easier to take to get some of these players that you like of this nature in uh, in, a, in a mixed draft because you know as you know in an auction when they come out the prices and all it takes is one other person to agree with you. And bids you up. Whereas in a draft, sometimes you just have to get in there before, you know, if you, if someone else agrees with you, but you pick three picks before him, you're going to get the guy. So I didn't get all my Orioles and Duval and AL Labor. But uh, those, yeah, those are the, I, I am finding themselves, uh, and, and I mentioned him before, Jake Cronenworth, he just, I don't think people realize how good he is. And he's just lost in the project. Maybe he doesn't pop in homers, he doesn't pop in steals. He just does everything really well at three positions.
0: I like Adam Duvall too, and uh, I hope nobody's listening to this in the one league where he's still available, because I I, <laughs> I don't want to go in too early on Adam Duvall because you know again we don't live our lives by ADPs, but certainly we're not at the yeah. stage of the draft where he should be going. So, right, I'm, exactly. I'm willing to wait a little. Any pitchers you think that are consistently being uh, popping Can up it? as bargains?
1: Here's a little, maybe I'll answer a question that, that you're not asking um, with this answer. Um, I've been kind of, not adamant, but waiting on pitching the past couple of years, not wanting to buy an ace. But what I noticed when my stuff came out and then some of the free stuff on fan graphs came out, the rankings, and just the just the ADP, again, talking relative versus absolute, there are some pitchers that I have ranked higher some good pitchers that I have ranked higher than the market. And I thought I – w- I said I would be a fool if I stuck to my – I'm not drafting a pitcher in the third round when I like some guys more than the market. I should just – I should get them. So the so the guys that fit that mold, you know, to the to – uh, Zach Wheeler is someone that – even if it's – I have him third and he's ranked seventh by the market. That's enough of a delta. Especially, you know, the higher you, the ranked, you know, the bigger difference between adjacent players. So third to seventh is much different than thirtieth to thirty fourth. I mean, they're almost the same at that point. So uh, Wheeler and the other one is Kevin Gosman. Uh, I don't. Did you? I don't know if you heard my thing with Kevin Gosman. Uh, I think this is kind of cool. No, his 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 Babbitt last year was 363. Bab against, Babb against. Okay? That's the 41st worst ever. The last time someone had a higher Babbitt was in 1918. Okay? Of the 40 Babbitts higher than Kevin Gosman, more than half were played when they weren't using gloves. That's how historically... I, I'm putting unlucky in parentheses because you know it's a, you know every single hit against wasn't unlucky, but there was a lot of there was a lot of bad luck in Kevin Gosman's three sixty three Babbitt last year. You could say you know literally say it was the worst ever, you know, in in modern whatever wherever you want to frame it. So I think that I'm just maybe regressing him a little harder than everybody else, and I think that's maybe why I'm coming out ahead of the field. But that isn't that weird. You know, 40, I mean, this is 1918. <laughs> He's had the highest ever Babip.
0: 104 years of uh, Babip. Is there any explanation for it? When you looked into it, did, could you see what what went on?
1: Well, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, again, not every single hit was bad luck, but he just, just ran into a lot of bad luck. So even if I even regressed him a little, you know, maybe to 300 and not 295 or whatever. I still came out ahead of the field. I mean, he's still at a 335 ERA. So he was lucky with, with left on base percentage, I believe. But even so, um, where I landed on him was a bit higher. And he's the guy, like you we were just saying with Duval, this is a little higher up the ranks that I have to do play a little bit of ADP chicken. And I don't want to miss out. On the other hand, when you do 10 drafts, you miss out on two. You really can't cry yourself to sleep over it either, you know. Just for that one draft, you're bummed, and you have to realize, well, I got him everywhere else. It's all good. But um, yeah, so those are the two pitchers that I find myself uh, gravitating towards. And I got Gosman in my AL labor. I paid full boat. I didn't get him at a discount, but I did get Kevin Gosman uh, in, to to anchor my AL labor staff.
0: You know, something I used to do. I don't know why I stopped doing it, but. I used to take every pitcher every year and go through them and normalize their hit rates and normalize their strand rates whatever their whatever they were either way and then recalculate what their ERAs and whips would have been if the absolutely league normal um statistics would have applied in in those two instances, and then look for guys who had unusually good or unusually bad seasons, relatively speaking, when you compared the the adjusted ERA with the real one and the adjusted whip with the real one. And I remember it working fairly well, especially at, of course, at the extremes where where you had pitchers who just had horrendous luck or had uh, unusually tremendous luck. Those were the guys I was interested in either uh, targeting or avoiding. And I think... It's another way of looking at things, I guess. But I wanted to ask you about Kevin Gosman because in a minute we're going to be talking about some of the changes to the rules that you've been writing about. And you've been, right. instead of just uh, yapping about it like guys like me, you've actually done some work calculations and calculations and analysis to figure out how these things might work. But I was thinking of Kevin Gosman when you talked started talking about him and there's been stories about him having some trouble with the new bulk rules. And maybe with the uh, with the time clock, because he his full windup has multiple toe taps. He stands there and he rocks back and forth and he taps his toe three, four, five times, and then he pitches. And I know that there's been some concern in Toronto media whether this is going to fly in the modern rules environment that uh, as it's ha- changed for twenty twenty three. What do you think?
1: Yeah, so he and Louis Garcia of Houston, who does like the Macarena before he pitches the the, they've the league sent their two motions you know video of their motions around to the league and said the we're going to call Bach this year on both these guys and you know they they were the two examples that they're hammering down it's not so much a new rule as it is you know putting into implementing a rule that already exists and the fact the clock thing is over and above it because it takes them longer to you know, with these toe taps, et cetera, or the dancing between pitches just to get the ball thrown, so it kind of rolls in. Um, I, I've also read that Gosman is aware of this, and he spent some time working on it. And you know, Kenley Jansen is, is trying to is, is finally pitch the other day after spending a lot of bullpen sessions getting faster. And I'm sure there's other pitchers the same way. So I, I, I'm aware. Obviously, I think everybody's aware. I guess I'm just figuring these guys are professionals, and even though this is the way they pitched, I think they can. I think they can figure it out. And you know, if, if you, this is how you need, does he need to do those toe taps to be successful? Well, then I'm in trouble because I get Kevin Gosman everywhere. If he's able to figure it out, well, then I'm you know then I'm a genius because everybody else was too scared because of the toe tap. So I'm aware of it, thought about it, and. Um, you know, I just hope that the man can figure it out because the guy throws the best splitter in the league and major league pitching, major league batters have more trouble against the splitter than any other pitch. So it seems to me that the guy who throws the pitch that gives MLB batters the most difficulty and throws it the best has a pretty good chance of being successful.
0: And before we leave uh, the whole topic of, of your drafts this year and drafting in general, how are you playing the closer game?
1: <laughs> oh, man, I should get a. I should in my writer. I should have doesn't talk about closers. Um, I'm playing pretty much the same way that I had the past few years in that I'm not going to pay a premium in a mixed draft for a top closer. I best ball's different. Best ball. I'm all over it because uh, I keep people shy away from closers uh, in, in a best ball. I say I embrace the volatility of three saves, one week, zero, the next. Um, so I, I'm i looking – Scott Scott Barlow is sort of the line between he's got the job and I trust him, and then the next set is, you know, I he could lead the league in saves or he could get 20 or 15. So Barlow's kind of that line. Um, I got Barlow, you know, so I, I don't mind getting Barlow, but – I'm more in the Bednar and Munoz and I don't want to get to the very end. I'd try to get a couple of guys in that. Um, he could actually lead the league and saves, but you know, it, it's not a sure thing. Weird, weird things could happen. So, in in an only league, I'm still willing to pay for a top closer. It just in, AL Labor last weekend. I, it just didn't work out that way. But like I said, I did get Scott Barlow. So put me in the middle, but I should throw the caveat in there. I'm not, I have not done any leagues that have an overall component yet other than TGFBI. Um, so I don't know if I was looking for, you know, when, when I do my, my first Roto-Wire online championship, let's see if I'm practice this or if I actually go in there and get a better closer. I don't know yet.
0: It's an interesting question to be sure. And I like the idea of them in, in the uh, best ball. The Raz Slam is a um, uh, best ball. We talked about it a 42 man roster and the whole advantage of the best ball thing. And I don't know that I'm going to trust closers over starting pitchers. I think I'm just going to take them in the order that they fall kind of Um, a top closer, your Edwin Diaz's and stuff are going to be in the Kevin Gosman range for points, expected points at any rate. And the lesser closers are going to be farther down. Just, they're just going to be stratified in among the, uh, all the pitchers. And so I'm going to look at it, I think that way. Todd Zola writes at Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, and SiriusXM, and he'll be back in just a second. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In gaming strategy, analyst Brant Chesser looks at performances of five National Leaguers, including Francisco Lindor, Devin Williams, and Willie Adamas. In playing time tomorrow roster analysis, Dan Marcus runs through the five teams in the National League Central, including a new leadoff man in Chicago, some roster roiling in Milwaukee, and some promising young pitchers in the Cincinnati rotation. And in gaming strategy, analyst Zach Larson looks at some strategies for NFBC cutline drafts. And those are just three articles among literally dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Facts and flukes, performance validation, playing time today and playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides, the market pulse, the big hurt, fantasy baseball research, and all kinds of tools to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. (laughs) And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, Rotowire, SiriusXM, and podcasts everywhere. And Todd, at ESPN, within the last few days, you had an article talking about the rules changes, and unlike the rest of us, you were actually doing analysis on the topic. What made you interested in doing this
1: analysis? Well, I think it's it's not a secret. I, I do ESPN's projections. So, um, what this was, and I basically explain in a general sort of saying, you know, it's an interesting article, but it was, this is what we at ESPN are doing with our fantasy baseball projections. So, I usually do some work for them in February. So, that's what we decided would be my, kind of my, my February work would be doing three pieces, kind of an informal series on what I did to make adjustments towards they weren't all i mean the schedules really not a rules change but you know it did affect projections on some of the some of the stuff that uh, influenced the 2023 projections you know different this year so i you know three part series and um you know i some of them i just reference work that you know smarter than me smart people smarter than me did and other times i did the work to figure out the numbers myself
0: Well, one of the first things that you did uh, was talk about steals, and you said in the piece, a logical place to start is to access the league-wide impact of the new rules based on the stolen base trends in the minors, where the rules were all tested before MLB implemented them. When you did that, what did you find?
1: Well, (laughs) here is where I relied on people that did the work. Uh, Trust me, one of our our friend and colleague, Jason Collette, did some work, and it basically I, you know what, they found was there was a, a, a jump anywhere from 20 to low 30 percent increase in the minor leagues. So, all right, that to me was a boundary. I think there's a huge difference in the inventory, in that most of the minor leaguers are young and spry and you know can run and, and that sort of thing, where not the major league pool. I think you're going to take out a lot of the plate. It's not going to run anyway. I don't care how close the bases are. So I didn't expect there to be the same increase. So most of them were close to 30%. So I figure maybe a 20% and it's hand waving at this point. I figured, you know, 20% maximum would be the increase. So I, I set my goal to have, per plate appearance basis 20% more steals this year than last
0: so you're talking about steals not just uh, opportunities or attempts
1: um all right uh, yes now yeah that's ac- that's a good point because the the success rate should be a little bit higher so um you're right i would increase the opportunities by 20% and the actual stolen bases would go up 21, 22% because one of the things everybody knows that occurred was the bases are three inches bigger, which translates to four and a half inches lesser of a distance between first and second or second and third. And some of the other rules about getting a bigger lead and et cetera, I think the success rate will go up. And so, I mean, maybe this is just a small percentage of it, but I didn't hear anybody else mention it. So, you know, let's mention it because I'm mentioning it what people are talking about is all these with instant replay, you know, you lose, you lose touch with the base for a millisecond and you're out. The bigger bases give you a little bit more, more mass to hold on to. Right. Uh, so you don't overslide as much. And I think that if you're sliding head first and the tag is on the bag, some of these guys would get, would it be the swing move or, you know, I think there's, uh, there's more base to help you evade a tag and all this is facilitated by the, you know, by the, you know, the zoom lens on the, on the instant replay.
0: Yeah. I think that's interesting. Something, and this is a kind of a side note. I don't think any, I've heard anybody talk about it and I'd be curious and I'm realize I'm asking you this right off the top of your head, but the, the first base is also an inch and a half closer. You mentioned it's four and a half inches closer to second. But it's also closer to all the infielders who are fielding ground balls. and I wonder if there's going to be any decline in the number of times that guys beat out uh, bang bang plays at first because the base is bigger and the ball doesn't have to travel as far on a throw from second from the second baseman to the first baseman. It's now four and a half inches shorter than it was yet last year and four and a half inches makes a big difference in bang, bang plays at first base.
1: Right, and I thought I actually have thought about this because I don't know that anybody I don't because the other the other aspect of it is the base is closer to, to for the baseball base for the base runner to run it's closer. And where I was thinking about this is, I, do, do, do you always do you subconsciously alter your gate towards the base to make sure you hit the base, and you're trying to hit it in the middle. You know, if you just try if you're putting giving that extra oomph to try to beat out a slow roller, your stride may be a little bigger or something. So I don't I, the point being just because the base is air quote three inches closer, I don't know when your foot hits it if it's always three inches closer. You know? Uh there was that famous play that on JD Martinez last year, a famous play. I don't know about famous. It was famous for a night on Twitter because he fell like an inch short of the bag and replay called him out. It looks safe. Cause you know, it, but he never touched the bag. So everybody whoa, oh, three inches, bigger base. He would have, he would have, he would have touched the bag. So I don't know. I mean, you know, when you're playing softball, back when I played it, I don't really think I had to worry about timing my step to hit the bag very much. Um, so I, I wonder, and, but yes, the, the stretch, the, the first baseman does get that extra, that extra three inches. Does that get balanced? by the runner having 3 fewer inches I don't I don't know necessarily that it does
0: I would suspect that it does not by very much and here's why the thrown ball is going a lot faster than the guy's oh, running
1: oh. when you know I, I I went to a game with with Ron Chandler uh, this past week and you really see it live and we at the AFL we see it all the time the distance that a throw can make up right you think there's no way that guy's going to be out you know, going from first to third on a single from right, you know, the throw coming in from right field. The 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 it's just to me it's amazing that the guy only took like two steps before the throw got there. You figured he could walk the rest of the way. There's no way. Throws makeups and it's even better or, or even more on infield when the throw's that much faster. No, you're right, but it's so cool to To me, anyway, when you're watching it live and you get that peripheral vision going on and you see both things happening at the same time, it's just, to me, it's amazing how much distance a throw makes up.
0: Especially when O'Neill Cruz is doing the throwing.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Boy, that's really
0: quite something. So because of the changes, you said there's going to be about, what, 500 more stolen bases, something like that, across baseball in 2023 over 2022. Was that the number?
1: Yes, according to twenty percent, it was around five hundred. Yeah. Okay,
0: so you got five hundred extra stolen bases, but as you said, and this is the first thing when I read that sentence, I thought, okay, how are you going to allocate them? And th- that's been a big question taught amongst analysts. Will everybody get twenty percent more than they would have otherwise? Uh, what did you find?
1: Right. So this is speculation, or you know, I call it educated speculation. I mean, what we have to do. I think there are three in talking to people. In Arizona, when we went in November, I, a lot of m- most people agreed. It would, you know, with the following premise: in that there's going to be a group. I don't care how close the bases are. We'll call them the Zolas. They're not going to run. They're just not going to run. Uh, they're not going. They're not going to benefit from the from the changes. And this is where I differ from some people, but I think I think the guys at the top end. That are just safe, any you know, safe a lot right now. I think they're still going to be safe. I, I don't think they're going to help. I don't think they're going to benefit. You know, I, I don't think Trey Turner and John Birdie are going to benefit a, a bunch from the rule. Maybe a little bit, but not, not nearly. If they're not going to benefit twenty percent. They're not going to go from fifty to sixty, or you know, forty to forty-eight. I just think they'll benefit by a couple. So that puts that bubble in the middle, where if it's what you just said, the ten to twenty-five or the the 65% success rate gets closer to the 75% that major league teams consider to be the break-even point. To me, there's that bubble in the middle that is going to get the increase. And if I'm saying the two bookends are really not going to get this 20% increase, to make the math work, this bubble in the middle needs more than 20%, right? Because, I mean, if if only half the field is contributing to the increase – then you know, the, I'm using these numbers just for an example. That you know, so that means that the this half the field needs to increase forty percent in order to make the the math work. Right. Those are just arbitrary numbers. I don't think that's what it's going to break down to. But the point being, it's not like the guy in the middle is going to increase twenty percent. He has to increase more to get the overall increase to be twenty percent.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. But I'm curious, why don't you think that a base runner like Trey Turner or you know one of the burners who's got a real solid success rate and which seems to help the uh, run scoring matrix move in a positive direction, why would Trey Turner, who's already really good at it, not just take more advantage of something he's really good at?
1: I think he's already taking advantage of it. I don't think it's going to give him any more opportunities.
0: But couldn't his opportunity rate go up?
1: To me, some of these guys, it's, it's already they're already running every chance they get. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, you, you can't run every single time because there's a guy in front of you or, you know, Plank's facing a lefty, et cetera. I just, I don't think it's going to increase them. I did increase them a little bit. I mean, this is the group that ain't going to run at all and that's whatever. I just, I don't think it's gonna I don't, I don't see a, a 40 going to 50 or I just, I think that they don't need the help. They already are taking advantage. We're already running all the time. And, They'll still get caught. Maybe they got caught a, a, a little bit less, but I don't think it's going to help. I think the guy, the, me, the, the group in the middle, and this is where, you know, you're not the first to ask me that. In <laughs> you know, we'll, 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 well, you know, part of the job I got to do is make a decision, and that's a decision I made, because the other aspect of it too, is with the shift, maybe they get on more, so it, the the you get more opportunities just because you're on base, maybe, maybe you get on base more. So you get more, more opportunities that way, which gets reflected into my numbers and I I base it on opportunities. So if you get on more, your opportunities are going to go up organically, but you know, all these sorts of things. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't see, I'm seeing maybe, maybe it's a little bit of a um, hyperbole when they're talking about, you know, Jesus, so-and-so is going to steal, 65 bases now because of it with these new rules. If you're going to steal 50 anyway, I don't know that you're going to, I don't think you're going to get that many, that many more, but I could, you know, what Dennis Miller used to say, I could be wrong.
0: (laughs) Well, I just looked it up. Ronald Acuna ran in his opportunities, the stolen base opportunities baseball reference defines as first or second, nobody in front of you. Ronald Acuna ran about 20% of his opportunities.
1: Guys getting thirty a year are getting a bump, and you know I'm talking. I'm I'm looking at the extremes, and so I mean he Acuna got a bump in my in my numbers, a, a pretty good one. Um, now the whole thing about will he run with a you know he ran last year, okay, but he also hurt his leg last year running. You know that Acuna is kind of a different sort of you know there's a lot of narrative going on with Acuna anyway, but um I'm not i you know to, to me the guys that get twenty five are going to increase the most because they can both get a better success rate and uh, just more opportunity. So to me, that 20, 20, 25 range is where I think is going to end. What I did was I I, I made my increase kind of like a, a parabola in that those at the low end, closer to the Zolas that aren't running, their increase isn't as much. It goes up like a bell curve. I think that's probably a better... So, you know, whoever's in the middle of that bell curve gets the biggest increase, and that's the 25 steel guy, and then it starts to come down. So by the time you get to the 35 to 40 steel guy, you're getting the increase. It's just not as much as some of the guys in the middle.
0: It'll be interesting to see how it plays out because, really, we're all kind of flying a little blind here. And we had the minor leagues, as you mentioned in your piece, we could rely on minor league data to tell us what might happen, but there's a pretty big difference, as you mentioned, between minor league players and major league players. And the main one being minor league players are younger and probably a little more likely to run because they don't feel like they're going to have aches and pains the next day.
1: Yeah. And they want to show off and this is what they can do and impress and, and, and catch the eye of the of the management, uh, you know, et cetera. And the other factor, I think that it's it's, again, narrative, speculation but I think there are going to be some teams that are more aggressive because of the rules. So it, you know, this whole, this, this curve that I'm putting is it's kind of team agnostic. I think there are going to be some teams that emerge that are going to have their guys steal more. And this might be more of an in season adjustment that we may need to make when we notice this happening and maybe this available player, or maybe we take advantage of in daily leagues or DFS But it seems to me there are going to be some teams whose philosophy overall is more aggressive.
0: Yeah, I noticed that you wrote about that in your ESPN piece. And which are the teams that, well, let me me start by asking, how much do you consider this to be news versus noise when some (laughs) team functionary comes out and says, yeah, we're going to steal a lot more? Well, if it wasn't Alex Cora, backed up by his general manager, it was just some guy who works, you know, sweep uh, pushing a broom down the uh, Fenway Park hallway. Um, how much weight do you attach to these kind of news reports? That we're going to run more. We're going to be more aggressive.
1: Yeah, best shape of my life. I yeah, you do have to you have to figure out the wheat from the chaff, and again, that's using our own uh, gut feel. Toronto said they're going to run a little bit. Um, if it's a new manager. I tend to listen to it a little bit because, you know, because th- they're probably asked a question. Um, I, I I don't think Bruce Bochy of you know, the Rangers, the new manager is going to come in and just give, you know, give Dean, everybody gets the green light. I don't think that's probably going to happen, but yeah, you do have to take it with, you know, the grain of, you know, Jorge Mateo, didn't he say he was going to come out and steal? He said book 75, um, Ozzie Albee, so wants to go 40-40. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, Albies said he wants all him and Acuña and Harris Michael Harris, yeah. Could all go 40-40. Right.
1: Well, you know, 40 are 40 runs in 40 RBI. Well, that's, <laughs> Yeah. No, no, that's 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 silly. But no, I so you're right. I mean, in this this is not just here. You do have to you you know, that's why I was kind of saying I think you need to wait for the for it to merge in season. Um, right now, I may use it as a tiebreaker for the teams that I trust. If if they're players that I trust, I think some of the front offices that are more sabermetrically inclined and adhere to the seventy five percent rule, which that number is is right now, you know, isn't that a little bit you know up in the air just because with all the new rules, maybe yes, the break even point, yeah, the break even point may not be seventy five percent anymore right i mean so we'll have to see how that works out especially if the ball is uh continues to or the balls continue to be uh a little restrictive in their flight uh it may that out maybe hurt you even more i don't know but um right you know the thing about it you know in fantasy we got to figure out a way to handle it and you know we're going to win or lose some leagues by the way we handle the stolen bases though i don't know if it's any if there are any drastic changes i still think people want to get their 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 steals here and there but i do think you want to decide who you're got who do you think are going to be the ones that are kind of outliers to the to the increase who are going to increase by even more than one may think
0: it seems to me that the success rate as long as the success rate stays at around 75% that it's going to help scoring for the team that has a 75% rate, because basically what they're talking about is a change in the runner on base out situation. And that's how that run matrix is, is manufactured. So, you know, irrespective of the distance between the bases, the, if you can move up from a base without causing an out, you're helping your team score runs. And then the balance is where does that, uh, where does that end up? Where, where's that balancing point and Something else I read since you mentioned it, I read that there was some rethinking of it going on that said seventy-five percent isn't high enough. That's and that has to do with some way that the run matrices and the win matrices themselves are being recalculated by right, guys right. with bigger brains than ours. Have you heard anything about that?
1: I have not. I just I, I mean, to me, it just makes sense that every year. I mean, I think it was happening just because, well, you know, with power going down, it, it would change. How it would change, I don't know 100. And I, you know, again with the with the ship with the, with the babip going down, and now knock on wood. I don't want to say knock on wood because I don't I don't I don't know necessarily that I wanted it to go up. Um, kind of torn between the whole shift rule, but I think with you know fewer hits, uh, I just knew that the to me the baseline had to change. I don't again. I'm not like you. I'm not smart enough to figure out what the matrix is. I, I am smart enough to know it's not the same every year.
0: Although it does get treated as though it does, it is the same every year. I had I, w- I wonder about a guy like Mateo as far as his value goes. If we assume that he's going to repeat last year, I think he was uh, on Baseball HQ's valuations. I think he was uh, in in the twenty dollar range just because of all the stolen bases in a category that was get sh- that was shrinking. So thirty five made up a pretty good chunk of right. that pool. He led the he led the majors in stolen bases. Suppose he does steal 75 bases this year. Does he become like one of the most valuable players in baseball, despite the fact that he can't hit? He's not going to contribute much in the way of home runs. I mean, he'll give you some run score because he's running wild on the bases, but he's not going to drive in any runs. He's going to be a category and a half player. But oh my goodness, that one category, if it's 75 bases and everybody else is at 40, how much better does he look?
1: Well, it depends. If you've got 30 steals without Mateo and he gets you to 105, you know, you're not wasting his steals. If you had, uh, you know, if you had 95 steals all by yourself without Mateo and he gets you 160 and the next highest in the standings is 125, you know, that he's got 35 wasted steals. But any the valuation formulas, be it SGP or, or standard deviation or just percentage v- PVM, they're going to, you're getting credit for every single steal, but they, you know, in, in a lot of scenarios, those steals are going to waste. So I, it, it, it kind of depends upon that. And the other thing, as far as, you know, pure valuation goes, if there are more steals in general, on a marginal basis, a steal will be worth a little less, but I know your question is someone who just is just blows away the field. Right. You know, what, what's he going to be worth? Um, so, I mean, I, I, it, it, it all these guys that look like the Mateos and you the way I've been approaching them is I want, I'm calling them luxury items and not staples. I don't, some of the, the I don't, I want to have a lot of steals already and get Mateo and he kind of, you know, I'm middle of the pack and he's kind of the icing on the cake. I don't want to say I need 120 steals and Mateo gives me 50. I want to say I need 120 steals and I've got a hundred and I'm drafting Mateo. Um, And and maybe I don't get it if I do that. Mateo's, again, his own little story in that in order to get 75 steals, he has to get on base. And he could just easily get 75 steals on AAA because I don't know if he has any options. Point being, um, he may not have a job. Uh, If he doesn't, you know, just because he runs, you you know, he's going to. Can't steal first. (laughs) Yeah, it's not the bananas, right? It's not the uh, Savannah, you know, it's not the bananas. You you can steal first uh, in certain scenarios. Uh, you you, you got to get on base. And Adam Frazier, you know, when, you know, when, you know they, they have some competition. Uh, Asturio Ruiz is the guy I know kind of all over the place, but that's normally the way we are. Asterio Ruiz is the guy that I look at because his minor league OBP was really, really good. He was terrible in the short time he had in the majors. and It doesn't translate really good, but if Ruiz were to get on base anywhere close to his minor league clip, we are looking at fifty steals, so you know he could also not get on base at all and and be replaced by Connor Capel or something. Who knows? But Ruiz is the player is a player that I'm trying to get as a luxury item.
0: And before we go, Todd, another question that has come up is who which pitchers are going to benefit most from the changed rules, especially the shifting rules. And I'll tell you a little anecdote. Uh, Somebody asked me this uh, in a social situation, which pitchers, and I said, probably right-handed ground baller pitchers because, you know, they're the ones who are going to benefit when left-handers hit the ball on the ground. And the other day I was listening to a podcast and the, the people talking on the podcast started by saying, you can't just say that. And then they had this real long discussion of all the calculations you have to put into it, at the end of which they concluded that the beneficiaries were actually going to be right-handed ground ball pitchers. And <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I know you've looked at it. What did you find out in your analysis of not just the shifting, but you looked at all the rules changes, uh, who, what kind of pitchers and possibly give us some names of pitchers who are, are going to benefit or who are going to be hurt?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's more about being hurt. and. I did the I did the the main the main glux gluck, uh, of the research glut of the research was on batters and I just I just found that I, the, a babbip on a fly ball the babbip on an outfield line drive I don't know that I don't think the shift's going to matter and so this this piece is available on Rotowire that that more the ESPN part so the pitcher piece I wrote up on Rotowire in that if the if you if you can't tell if, if outfield or lofted ball BABIP really can't judge by the shift, then it's probably the same for pitching too. Um And I did come down, you know, in batters, the batters that it, it, that it helped the most were left-handed batters and more on their ground ball BABIP than their outfield BABIP. So it just made stand to reason intuitively that the pitchers that are, that stand to, uh, you know, Get hurt the most are those that give up ground balls in and mostly right-handed, because it's left-handers get shifted 55% of the time, and right-handers get shifted close in in the twenties. Overall, it's a low like 33% of all plate appearances. There's a shift. It seemed like more than that, but uh, I guess not. But anyway, um, so yeah, it's the right-handed ground ball pitchers. And you know the, the the one the name to me. I mean, I'm gonna get hit by lightning in, indoors, and you can't say a, a bad word about Sandy Alcantara, or you're a hater. You get canceled on Twitter. But Sandy Alcantara is in danger this year. He's got Joey Wendell and Lewis Arise up the middle, and he gives up a lot of ground balls, and they can't shift as much. I think you know, I'll if you're. I think I think he's in danger of. He's still gonna be really good, but you know, good pitchers, you know, get good and bad luck, et cetera. I mean, to me, any right-handed ground ball, you know, pitcher that gives up a lot of ground balls is in danger of having their, you know, the whip, the ratios suffer a bit. Uh, you know, now we get into how, and this is my argument of all the shifting is anytime we do these calculations, oh, you're going to get 42 more hits or Corey Seeger would have had 27 more. Hit- that You have to presume where the defense was going to play, what the pitcher was going to throw, and the batter's approach. We don't know what it would have been. We're just assuming it and therefore extrapolating what happened to what would have happened, assuming we knew where the defense would have been. We don't know. You can still do funky things. The you know Red Sox put uh, their left fielder at the rover position when Joey Gallo was up. You can still shade up the middle. You I saw still, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can still put your third base where the shortstop is and your shortstop right, you know, to a millimeter to the left side of the second. You can still have funky defenses and not have them called the shift. So I, I think that you can't – people want – you know, there's so many numbers out there with StatCast. We should be able to quantify exactly what the batting average would have been. No, we can't. We can try to guess who's hurt the most, who's hurt the least, and what might happen – but, you know, don't I, I don't know the number. I think Corey is going to benefit. can't tell you how much. You know, I don't know exactly how defenses are going to play. So, and, and, and to me, it's similar with the pitchers. Um, you know, their their defense may be better. The, even though they're not in the shift, the defense may, they may not, the the, the fall may be soft because they got a really good defense behind them and they're going to get to a lot of those balls anyway.
0: That's what I thought, too, when I was thinking about the issue and, The point that you made just a second ago really resonated with me because when I first heard, well, this pitcher gave up these ground balls to, to, to right field and therefore some of them are going to be hits that wouldn't have been. But, like you said, well, maybe he'll throw fewer change ups because he doesn't want to get ground balls to the to the right side. Maybe he'll you know, just pick and uh, fiddle around the edges more and give up a few more walks. but they, the pitchers are not going to just go out there and do what they did last year to get a lot of ground balls to the right side if that was their technique because it isn't going to work as well. And the other thing, of course, is we don't know exactly where those balls were hit. Some of them, some of them that were hits went to where somebody wasn't who may now be right where that, that ball went, you know, right, yeah, there's a million yeah. variables here to to consider. And unfortunately the interplay between them is super complex. I think what is going to be interesting is at the end of this season, when analysts like you start looking back at the data, you'll really be able to get a much firmer grip on the actual effects of these things. And I bet you, we're going to be surprised at that not only what the effects were, but the magnitudes of those effects.
1: Yeah. But as we know, especially when one year's worth of batted ball data, there's a lot of noise in there. I think, we, you know, I think we need a few years of it. Yes. I mean, we're going to get, we're going to be on the way, but I still, I think we're going to have to look at, I don't think we're going to be able to say a particular batter was, was affected this way or that way. I think we're going to have to look at groups of, yes. that, you know, yes. you know, And that, you know, that we'll we'll see it there. And then there will be, you know, outliers within each particular group that just happen to get unlucky or, or whatever it might be, but sure, we're going to learn a little bit. Um, And so we're teams and teams are going to push the envelope and figure out what they can do with the defense. And maybe, maybe we're we're going back to more athletic middle infielders. And it's, you know, it's, that's what to me. That's what you know makes it the challenge, makes it fun to see how some of these teams react. You know, a, a Brendan Lowe, or Brendan Lau, has been a good defender because Tampa knows exactly where to put him. We'll see how good a defender is when he has You know, have, with the range of a normal second baseman, we'll see.
0: And they're still allowed, as you said, they can still position the second baseman where the the heat map of the hitter. Yeah. is likely yeah. to hit it. I mean, he, the, the area between first and second is 90 feet and the second baseman can be positioned anywhere along there, in or out and left or right. So I think that, that, that they're going to figure that out to a certain extent. And I wonder how interesting it'll be if they start putting more emphasis on the defensive side of the middle infield game, which is something that has gone a little bit by the boards the last five or 10 years to my way of thinking, because they want hitters in there and... Not in all cases, of course, but in several cases that I can think of, there are shortstops out there who frankly are not exactly Mark Belanger or, uh, you know, Davey Concepcion or anybody who was really slick with yeah. the mitt to Omar Vizquel. They're not that. And Omar Vizquel used to play and made himself a pretty good hitter, but for the longest time, he wasn't a particularly good hitter and he played anyway because he could scoop it.
1: Right. We mentioned when we were talking, you know, much earlier about the lack of scarcity, well, that's what it's all about, is there's just better offense up the middle, and it's just because you said there's not so much less of an emphasis on defense, but teams are so, – and this is what I was saying earlier about being conflicted about the shift, in that as a scientist, you know, I shouldn't teams be rewarded for doing the work and knowing where to put their fielders? You know, I, to me, that's that's a shame that if, if I know where you're going to hit the ball, I should be able to stand there. However, as a fan, I do understand and agree that the game might not be as aesthetically pleasing as it was a few years ago. What I don't like is when when an announcer will say, you know, the way it should be baseball back to the way it should be played. It should be played the way for a team to score the most runs. You know, if that's launch angle and if that's shifting, that's the way it should be played. It's the way they want it to be played. So I can understand it, but I am I am torn that, like I said, the researcher in me feels teams should be rewarded. And now it's up to the onus of the batter to, you know, we willie we willie-keel it, hit them where they ain't. All right, but it's going to take 10 years for the next group of hitters to come through the minors to be able to do that and, I, you know, we don't want to wait those 10 years.
0: But you're right. I think we're going to have to. I mean, there are some hitters in big league baseball now I think will be able to adapt, but chances are they're the kind of hitters who never got shifted against in the first place because, because, of course, the ones who could poke it outward. Wee Willie Keeler style are the ones who didn't get shifted against. So it's a, right. there's a, a lot to unpack there. It's going to be very interesting to watch this year, not only from a fantasy baseball perspective, Todd, but from a real baseball perspective, I think the times they are a change in and uh, the only thing that remains to be seen, I guess, is that what that change is going to be and how, how big the changes are going to be in, in how they affect the playing of the game.
1: Yeah. And, you know, back to the scientific analogy, when you when they do an experiment you keep everything the same except one thing you change that and you see what happens well <laughs> that's not what's happening in baseball uh, there are just so many variables you know so whatever runs go up runs go down at the end of the year we're not going to be able to say why because it's it's going to be a combination you know was it the pitch clock was it this was it you know and then throwing the what ball are we using etc cetera, etc cetera. and now are we, this year, ne- this time next year, are we talking about the ramifications of the Robo Umps and the Challenge System. So um, it is—it's fun. It, it you know, it's frustrating a little bit maybe, but I don't know. I, I think it's—I think it's—it's it's, to me, it's more fun. The frustration is there, but the fun you know, once you get over, you know, having a bad day, it's frustrating. The other six days a week, it's fun.
0: Agreed, Todd. Thanks very much for helping us out on our really our first edition of 2023 and so far as spring training is concerned we'll have we'll have shows uh, all the way through uh, two a week through the through opening day, and then one a week from then till the end of the season, pretty much. And of course, Todd, you'll be back uh, several times, including for our roundtable editions at the All Star break and at year end. And always look forward to those because it's fun talking to you and Ray about fantasy baseball more than almost anything that that I can do. So thanks again for helping out, and we'll talk to you soon.
1: Uh, great to be with you, PD, and appreciate being. Well, I saw Ray was on. Appreciate being the the, the two hole hitter for you.
0: And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number three of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, RotoWire, wire XM, and podcasts all over the place. Todd is a longtime friend of Baseball HQ Radio. He thinks a lot about fantasy baseball, and he's very interesting when he talks about his thoughts and just a great pleasure to have on the pod. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Pocket Cast, iTunes, Spotify, Google Pods, wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, leave us a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with our first News and Notes session of the new season, discussing the goings-on in spring training games and what they mean or don't mean for the fantasy season to come. That's a news and notes edition coming up this Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and for now, so long.
1: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.